I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Yeah. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments, those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices. Thanks for tuning in. And I'm excited to have Jamie Cassip on the show. Jamie has served as Chief Education Evangelist at Google for more than 14 years. In that time, he launched Google's G Suite tools and Chromebooks into higher education and K-12. He was also the creator of Google for Education Transformation Framework. Jamie is not only a leader within technology, but he is a strong advocate for equity, inclusion, and diversity within policies and practices. And on top of all of that, Jamie has a great YouTube channel and takes stunning photography. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thank you very much. Funny that you mentioned the photography. I was... Uh... I was trying to edit one of my photos from this past weekend right before this call. Yeah, let's let's start with that. Uh, you have a passion for video and photography. I've been following some of uh, some of your work, especially the star scenes that you're able to capture in the desert. What is it about video and photography that you find interesting? So those are two separate things. I've always okay. been a photographer, and since as, as long as I can remember, I, I, you know, I had a Pentex 1000 at one point and uh, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of Canon cameras. I've always been a photographer. The, the videography thing started a year ago uh, when a friend of mine who, who uh, I've known for more than 10 years told me that I am not doing a good job getting my messages out. And, you know, after I slapped them around a little bit and pointed out the fact that I traveled 300,000 miles that year, uh, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you reach a couple hundred people here, a couple thousand people here, but you know, you are you're not using the the platforms effectively. You know, you could be you could have a YouTube channel and get lots of different kinds of messages out there, and they just stay out there, and you can anyone mm-hmm. can visit them or use them whenever they need to. And and he was right. And so I started a YouTube channel, not knowing anything about videography. I mean, I didn't even know my really good camera had a record button on it, right? So I knew nothing. So it's funny because I, I share this story sometimes when I talk about education, when I talk about learning, because I went to my daughter. I have a 27-year-old who's actually a videographer. She is an editor, She like, like you know, MBA level. She, she works at CNN. She makes fake news. And um, <laughs> I uh, I said how do I how do I start my 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 YouTube channel I want to start my YouTube channel and she laughed for ten minutes 
And then when she was done, you know, she gave me some, she's like, write this down. This is your, this is your foundation, right? And I think that's really comes down to education. It's like, what is your foundation? And then what do you grow? And then how do you grow from there? And, and she said, you know, shoot at 24 frames per second, uh, double your shutter speed, keep your ISO at 100. And if you go outside, you're going to need a variable ND filter. And, you know, she's giving me like these top 10 things that I, I need to write down. And so I write these things down and I'm like, cool, this is very helpful. Okay, here's my next question. What the hell do any of these words mean, right? Because I knew nothing about videography. So in the past year, I've taught myself hmm. how to be a videographer, how to be uh, uh, on a YouTube channel and how to do YouTube and how to put it all together. And, and it's a learning process for me. And, you know, if you watch the first couple of videos, you know, they look like hostage videos compared to the last couple of videos, which I hope are getting better. Right. And so you can see that. And I use this as a learning thing because, hmm. you know, anyone can learn anything. Right. And so the reason I don't have a lot of friends is because when uh, people come to me and they say, I, I'm just not very good with video or I'm not very creative or I'm not good at math or I'm not or an educator will say, I'm just not good with technology. And this is why I don't have friends. My response is always, no, you're choosing not to be good at these things. You, you've made a choice. It's a conscious choice or unconscious, but you made a choice to not be good at those things. And everything that you need to be good at those things are out there for you. Right. And so I use videography as a great example. Hmm. Photography, I've always I've always loved photography. I've only gotten into astrophotography in the past year and mostly because I live in Arizona. And during the summers, I spent a lot of time in Northern Arizona where it's not 350 degrees like it is in Phoenix. So we come up to Flagstaff and Flagstaff is a great launching point to the Grand Canyon and Monument Valley and the Painted Desert. It's just a lot of, lot of dark sky, right? I always feel bad for people who live in on the east coast there's literally no dark sky you know and i i grew up in hell's kitchen and i thought there were only two stars in the whole universe right because you look up and there's like two stars but out here you have all these stars so a, a year ago same thing i started teaching myself you know what are I, what are the tools that i need for astrophotography what do i need to do and then and then i just fell in love with the whole isolation of the whole thing so the the the, the photos that you're talking about uh, I just posted from Saturday night. Uh, yeah, Saturday night. No, wait, Friday night. I went out to, uh, I just literally drove for about 40 minutes out on the 180 to find a place to park my, park the truck and, you know, get some dirt road and set up and take pictures of Neowise. And like, you're out there in complete darkness. Uh, there's no sound. Uh, it's just you and your thoughts and a camera and a flashlight. And it's just, I love photography. I, I just posted on my Instagram account, a picture of my daughter I took yesterday at the lake. So I love just general photography, but there's something crazy and cool about astrophotography. Never mind that I am a huge space fan and a nut. And I only have one thing on my bucket list. There's just, there's just, there's just one item on my bucket list. And that is to see the earth from space. That's the only thing on my bucket list. It's not, mm, I'm not, I'm not a big one. I just want one thing. And, and so I'm a huge, so all those things together come together. And so, yeah, and, and never mind the editing process and sitting there and listening to music and editing on the weekends. You're forced to not work, right? You're forced to concentrate on what you're doing. And so the whole thing uh, works out well. Yeah, that's an interesting connection between all of those pieces. And, and I appreciate it. I'm in Philadelphia, so I'm on the East Coast in the major cities. So I can 
appreciate yeah we don't have any stars out here so i when i want to see stars i just look at your photography and that's, that's really helpful <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta drive i mean that's the thing is you gotta drive a long way and, and the sad thing is that if you you're actually on on the water and if you could tr- and you could literally go out an hour into the ocean and be in dark sky but the problem is you can't take pictures because your boat moves yeah yeah that would be a problem um Before we get any further, uh, you know, we have to talk about your recent transition from Google. Um, You know, that's the big uh, question. So if you can just give a little bit, I'm sure you get asked that question a lot, but if you can just give a little bit of insight into what uh, went into that decision. Yeah. So look, I I was at Google for 14 and a half years, kind of fell into the whole education stuff. I've always been interested, you know, the, the problem is I've always wanted to change were around policy issues never really focusing specifically on education. But when I joined Google, uh, I started working for the CIO. And, you know, he said, you know, we were on the ASU campus and he said, you need to to go talk to all the leaders at ASU to find out what the problems are that they're dealing with, because I'm sure they're going to want a thousand different projects to work on with Google. So I went, met with the, the leadership team, met with the CIO, and his biggest issue was email. And at the time in 2006, none of the students were using the ASU email platform. It was 250 megabyte hard drive space. It was client-based. It was all these issues. So students were using Hotmail or Gmail or, you know, or whatever was available back in 2006. And, and so I said, hey, we got this tool called Google for your domain where you can put your email on the Gmail platform, use your domain, and everything is already done. These, these students are already used to using Gmail. Let's do that. That turned into Google Apps for Education, and I fell in love with the space. And then I, that's when I started seeing the impact that technology can have in education. That's when I, you know, I realized when I was 11 years old, the the amount of information and education that was available to me compared to what was available to me in 2006 was just insane to me. And I didn't think that we were taking advantage of that. So that's kind of how I fell into it. And then, you know, then I spent, and it was just two of us, two of us were on the team. And then, there, you know, we grew to four. And then I had this crazy idea of launching Google Apps in the K-12. And we needed some things that needed to be done before we did that. So we did that. And then my craziest idea is obviously, uh, the, I pitched to Sundar and the team uh, when I saw this new tool that Google was developing called the Chromebook. And I said, hey, we should launch that into education. And initially they said, no, that's, you know, it's not an education project or product. And I get it. You know, the education team at the time was like five people. And uh, and so through some convincing and persistence, uh, I was able to do a six-month roadshow where just two of us went on the road for six months with Pelican cases. We didn't even have enough budget to, like, do this in hotels. We had to do it in Google offices. And we invited tech directors in to see the Chromebook and answer a lot of the very basic questions again back in 2011 around like, what is this thing? What does it do? What do you mean it doesn't have a hard drive? What do you mean it has a small hard drive? What do you mean it has to be connected to the internet? Like all of these questions. And so we went through these roadshows and eventually a couple of schools are like, huh, that's interesting. And you got to remember, this is in the middle of the iPad revolution, right? So mm-hmm. you go from a thousand dollar iPad that you had to... Uh, re-image every couple months to put new software on there. And, you know, you had um, security issues and uh, malware issues and porn issues and all these other things Mm -hmm. to a device that costs, you know, roughly 300 bucks that you control the entire ecosystem of it. And so convinced a couple of schools launched that. And so, and so 
And, and then I did some internal things. You mentioned a transformation center. I, I wrote a white paper internally on that, and that turned into something. So the team went from two to five to 10 to 20 to 100 to I don't know how many are now, right? So yeah. the team kept growing and getting bigger. And my role turned into a very consistent role, which was to go out and and talk about education and to have ideas about education and to be a subject matter expert for our team who are working with school districts and universities. And that was great, but I've been I've been doing this now for three or four years. And and it was time for me to do something different. So when Google went through its, you know, it's it's ever-changing organizational changes that they go through, like every big company, you know, I started there were four thousand people, and now there's I don't know, 130,000 people. Mm. I just stopped wanting to be part of that. And look, I, I, I said this in my video, right? Uh, 14 years at Google and Google never once told me what to say or what how to say it or what I should or shouldn't say. And I was a public figure and, and they were amazing about that, right? So it, it wasn't that. I just felt, um, I felt like the issues that I cared about um, weren't necessarily backed up by actions that the company did right and it was more of like oh no as long as you keep talking about it 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 just it just got to the point where the things that i was focused on around equity and inclusion and diversity are are bigger than technology right that technology is a great tool to use to solve some of those issues but it wasn't about like launching new products or launching technology so i figured it was time for me to find something else to do so i took advantage of the transitional point in the organization and said, okay, you know, so what? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Let's go do this anyway. So so what are you thinking about next? What problem do you want to solve next? That's a great question. Funny thing is that I've done a couple of podcasts since, and you're the first one to ask me the question that way, which is great. Okay. Um, so, okay. So I said this in one of my videos, but the here's the assumption that I, there's two assumptions that I can make. Number one is, let me take a, a little context. I, I've been doing this for 14 years at Google. I was at seven years at Accenture. And in the in the positions that I've been in, in the boardrooms that I've been in, and the big team meetings, and the, you know, in all these giant, influential, you know, life-changing, organizational changing meetings that I've been in, I almost never find anyone with my background. Someone with all the criteria, right? There's sometimes you find some of it, but all the criteria, someone who is, um, so, you know, born and raised in the ghetto, uh, born and raised uh, as a first genera- generation American, born and raised in, uh, with a single, you know, raised with, by a single mother, grew up on welfare and food stamps, in a violent community, all those factors together, who went to like, you know, SUNY Brockport, right? Uh, when you put all those factors together, I don't get to meet a lot of people like me in the positions that I'm in. And I can make one of two assumptions. Assumption number one is that I've been successful and I've had this great career because I have a 900 IQ and I'm a super genius. That's what my wife thinks, I think. Or there are millions of students, millions of young people, millions of people who are just like me, who have the same capacity, same capability. And and for some reason, they're, I mean, we know why, but for lots of reasons, they are they can't be as successful what is it what's in that pipeline what's in that process what's in that system across the whole board and that's the problem that i'm trying to solve and you can solve that problem in lots of different ways you can solve it with parental education you can solve it solve it in early childhood development you can solve it in in k-12 you can solve it in college 
Uh, you can solve it in the business world. You can solve it in professional. There's lots of ways to solve that problem. And this is the, the, the issue that I'm currently facing, which is when someone asks me, what's next? What's the next thing? Mm-hmm. I, it's not it's not one thing. It's all those things. It's that, that whole pi- I want to be in, involved in all that pipeline and all of it. Right. And one way or the other, I think it's more about you can't tackle one thing at a time because you tackle one thing and the other thing's broken. And then you go, it's like, a, it's like trying to put your finger on a, on a, you know, on the, on the holes in a boat, you know, when the boat's mm-hmm. sinking, right? Like I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to tape up all the holes. And so that's what I'm trying to do is find uh, it's almost like interviewing different projects and programs and products and whatever, whoever wants to talk about like, this is how we're solving that problem and say, Oh, I think I can have an impact there. Uh, or I think I can have an impact there, wherever that is. And so that's kind of what I want to focus on. Yeah, I want to take a, a step back, um, still talking about the problem idea and yeah. sort of I, I want to get your insight into that. Um, not everyone uh, poses their work in the ter- in the terms of a problem. Why is that important for you to to sort of interact with your work in, in that language or in that approach? Yeah, that's a great question because it doesn't have to necessarily be a social problem, right? It doesn't have to be solving world hunger or climate change. I mean, if, if the thing that I was obsessed with was photography, and I am, let's say the problem I wanted to solve was making the best astro camera, I could, astrophotography camera I could. And I, you know, I, I was, but I'm great at, you know, design or product design or I'm an engineer, you know, if that's the problem I wanted to solve, then that's the problem that I would solve. It doesn't have to be a social problem. And, and I think that it makes, look, the Daniel Pink in his book, Drive, and I always pitch his book. I, I, I know Daniel Pink and he needs to start charging me, I start paying me 10 cents for every book I sell of his. But in his book, Drive, he talks about the three things that motivate all human beings, right? It's the same three things, no matter where you are in the world. Purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Those are, those are, if you think about any work that you've ever done, those are the three buckets you're trying to fill. And even someone like me at Google, like I could have purpose um, and, and I could, but if I don't have autonomy, I don't, you know, if they gave me a script of what to say in my presentations, that wouldn't be very fulfilling, right? So those three things are what motivate all of us. So if you break down what I talk about into that list, right, problem is, uh, sorry, purpose is what's the problem that you do want to solve? What's the purpose uh, autonomy is how do you want to solve it? How do you want to take your gifts, your talents, the things that you're good at to solve that problem? And then the third thing is mastery. What do you need to know to solve that problem? What's the mastery you need to have to solve that problem? And so I just think that it's not it's it's not an unusual way to think about it. I think it's the human way to think about it, right? And so it makes it makes it easier and also more enjoyable. Like I I love. I, I'm, it's, I know I'm a nerd and it's weird, but you know, I, my alarm, I went, I stayed up late editing photos last night and I didn't have to get up, uh, until a little bit later. Usually I'm up early. And so, uh, you know, I set my alarm for like seven o'clock in the morning as opposed to normally when I set it like, you know, five thirty or six. And I, uh, I popped out of bed at six, ready to go. Like I love Mondays. I love getting up knowing I got this whole week of meetings and, and issues and, and get people to think about things in a different way. Having this podcast, like I, I love this work. And I think that's where the purpose comes in. Out of those three areas, which one do you think is lacking the most in education? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, 
I think here's that's a great question because I actually know the answer to this question. <laughs> um, the answer the answer to this question is uh, autonomy. And let me paint a picture for you. I I 14 years at Google, so I've worked in technology. I worked in education. Seven years at Accenture, I worked at uh, I worked uh, in healthcare. Uh, finance. I worked on the Bank of America Nations Bank merger. I worked at United. I, I worked at American Express. I, I worked in electronics and high tech. I was there in the boom of the 2000s. I was in there with startups. And then uh, before that, I spent two years working for Governor Cuomo, uh, working in policy, working on welfare reform, working on state issues and those types of things. So I worked across every single workforce, all of them. And so I got a good grip on different workforces. And I can tell you without a doubt that the most passionate and dedicated workforce are teachers and teachers that show up on Saturdays, right? Like, so I, you know, I, I fly somewhere and I set up and I'm about to speak. And then I look out in the audience and I realize that the 500 people in there are doing this on their own time, right? Uh, they spend their own money. They don't get paid well. They, they care about their kids. I can make a teacher cry in 15 seconds, right? <laughs> I, you can't make a financial planner cry in 15 seconds, right? They, you or, or disability determination specialist, you just can't. And and so the passion, back to that idea of purpose, mastery, and autonomy. The, the the purpose is there. You have a workforce with purpose. They're there for the right reason. They're not there to be millionaires. Now, I think that what we're missing and the opportunity that we have is to turn up the um, autonomy spigot. Like, just let it go, right? Like, we have an opportunity to let teachers drive what the next phase looks like. They know. They're the experts. Let's give them the autonomy. And then the second part of that is let's give them the mastery. Let's give them the skills, the tools, the resources that they need. But the teachers are the ones who should be driving what education looks like. They know the students the best. And we put all these restrictions on them with standardized testing and curriculum, and you should be at this level. Like even now, this whole through this whole pandemic, everyone's talking about all the politicians and all the policymakers and all the pundits are talking about how the students are falling behind. What, what are they falling behind in? What what artificial construct did we put in place that the kids are falling behind in? We made you think my five year old's falling behind if she doesn't go to kindergarten, like. No, it's it's they're not falling behind. Uh, they're they're falling behind a, a, some kind of artificial level you put in place so that you can test them and a test that you know that nobody is going to remember what was on the test three months from now or it's irrelevant to their ability to do anything, right? Like, and I wish that all the policymakers and all the pundits and everyone else could go take the SAT test and see how they do. Um, because it's clearly not the reason why we should be talking about students falling behind. So if we focus on educators and giving them the autonomy to say, how would you do this? What would you, what would you do if you could do your class over? You know, and again, you can't just open it up. You got to give them the scaffolding to get there. And that's the skills and the things that they need. And that's, a, I think, a mistake that we make in education. You know, superintendent, you know, has an, a, a, a wake up kind of, paradigm shifting event or something and then they walk into school and they say all right teachers from now on I'm, there's no more control you can do what you want mm -hmm. and, and then three months from now the school falls apart right or the district falls apart because and, and then the superintendent for the rest of his career or her career will say you know i gave them the autonomy and they just they, they just couldn't take it 
And and the reality is no one can. You have to you have to you have to build a skill to be able to do that. Yeah, that that autonomy piece sort of jumped off the uh you know when when you mentioned those three as as the thing that was lacking. It's interesting to to hear your insight uh on that. Um Jamie, a couple of years ago I got to I got the chance to hear you in person. Um and that conversation that you had with the audience where where I was um has had a big impact on my educational journey. And to be honest, it really started a pivotal shift in the way that I began approaching education. And first, I just want to thank you for that. And I want to let you know that your work has had a great impact on on many people, including um, myself. And secondly, I want to draw you out a bit on one of the main points you made uh, that afternoon. And I just want to hear you expound on it a little bit more. Um, You said technology within education has the chance to be the great disruptor. What what did you mean by that? Yeah. So, so here's the thing. And first of all, thank you for all those kind words. Um, It makes, you know, I, I'm very bad at getting compliments, but the the reality is that uh, they, they help the work, right? They keep me going. So thank you for that. Um, so here's the thing about about technology and being an old man like me is that I remember the world before technology or what we call today technology. Technology has always been around. But I, I like and I use this example all the time, like being 11 years old when a student said, if you ask me as a teacher what happened on December 7th, 1941, I would say, um, I don't know, but I'm going to go find out. I'll be back tomorrow with the answer. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I had to go to get my. Uh, you know, I had to go either ask someone, but I don't know if it's if they're credible. So I have to, like, determine whether the person I'm asking is credible. I have to go to an encyclopedia and look it up. And I, I didn't have encyclopedias growing up. You know, well, you know, we had the M, right? Like every year the sales guy would come by and sell you the M for like $9.99 and sign you up for subscription service. And my mother would always take it and never, never actually follow up. And, and so we, we had like all the M's from like 1977, 78, 79. But anyway, so, or I had to go to the library on 51st Avenue and Columbus. The one library that was available to PS111, PS45, PS17, uh, Sacred Heart, Holy Cross, all the schools that were in that community, we had one little library for everyone. And I would have to go look it up there, that a, a building or a place that closed at five o'clock in the afternoon, wasn't open on the weekends, all these other issues, right? The lack of information, the lack of access to information when I was 11 years old in my lifetime is completely eradicated. You know, you, we talk about eradicating uh, diseases and, and issues and poverty, but we eradicated the lack of, of information, right? And so that's what I mean, because now I can answer that question in 10 seconds. And more importantly, the question doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. More importantly, the, we can ask better questions. Better question is why did December 7th, 1941 happen? Or a, even a better question is can December 7th, 1941 ever happen again? Those are questions that you can't just look up because the information is at our fingertips. We don't have, we can't ask questions like that. And so if you're asking students questions that you can literally look up with just speaking into your phone and finding the answer, then you're not. You're not serving the student. And, and I think that's an important point because that's the that's the d- disruption that we can make with technology. is isn't to make things cooler or whatever. It's that we can change what it is that we teach or how we teach or what it is that we want to focus on. Because 
that's the impact that technology can have. And, and if all we do is take technology and put it on top of the current system, then all we're doing is making the new system look nicer and maybe a little bit faster. What we need to do is take the best ideas that we have in education, the best ideas that we have about learning, and then ask ourselves, how do we bring those ideas to life? How do we use technology to bring those, those ideas to life? And I think that's, that's the transformation that we can bring. Now, how can we, um, you know, as educators or as society, take the power of that technology and, and disrupt or advocate for equity, inclusion, diversity? Yeah, well, so the great thing about this pandemic, probably not a lot of sentences that start that way, but the great thing about this pandemic is that, it, it, you know, those of us that have been advocating and know about equity issues in education for a decade and longer, obviously, uh, but those of us that have been talking about it publicly for, for at least a decade, um, all of a sudden now, it's not just noise anymore. People are actually paying attention. People can actually see equity issues. People can, like... You know, American society, you mentioned society, policymakers can say, wow, like, wow, you know, we really have equity issues. We really have equity issues when it comes to technology. We have equity issues when it comes to broadband. We have equity issues when it comes to the access to that information and that technology. We have equity issues when it comes to people who are trained and developed to be able to take advantage of those technologies. Like there's huge gaps and it's clearly seen now. So I think that's a good thing. That's a step in the right direction where mm. we can actually see that. I, you know, say what you want about the current administration, but I, I remember like two months ago, you know, when when the administration was talking about you know having a focus on American infrastructure, the first thing they talked about was broadband. We got to fix the broadband issue. So now we're talking about it. Now now it's out there. So I think that we can look at this and say. Um, and we're having and we're having conversations about the definition of equity. What does it mean, right? And and so we, I think, most of the time have the wrong definitions of what uh, inequality is, or, or or sorry, what inequity is. And and so we're in this process of defining what uh, what equity sh- issues are and how do we deal with them. So hopefully. When, when next time a, a local community, when we're back to normal and the economy's booming again and everything's great and a local community, school district says to its community, we need more funding to support our inequity issues in our school district, that that society, that community be like, yep, you do. Here you go. I want to circle back uh, a bit to education, um, focusing on that uh, just with a specific question. You've been in a ton of classrooms. You've been a teacher yourself, what does good education look like? (laughs) You know, that's a great question because one of the things that happens to me all the time, I get lots of people, you know, who know, who know what I do and come up to me and say, oh man, you, you, oh, you're going to Arkansas. You should check out the school. It's amazing. Or you should go to, you're going to California, you're going to LA. Oh, you should go check out the school or wherever it is that I'm going or wherever. People always want to highlight their idea of what a, an amazing school is. And so I ask, again, this is another reason I don't have friends. I say, well, what makes it a great school? What, why is it, a, what, how is it an excellent school? And it's always the same thing. It's test scores. It's, oh, their test scores are insane. They're, they're just off the, they, 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 they got rigor. They'll focus on, on uh, they'll 
beat kids down until they get the right answer so that they, when they take the test, they pass the test and they get like, they're like 95 in the, in the state or whatever, right? Like those are the answers that you always get. The answers that I'm looking for, and this, this is related to what's great education. I'm looking, I'm not, those are my metrics. I'm looking for, are, are the kids happy? Um, do they enjoy learning? Do they have a joy from learning? Do they, uh, do they show up early? You know, if it's an older, you know, if it's like a high school, do the kids show up early? How much earlier? Like my, my five-year-old, like this literally happened yesterday. She's right now participating in, in a, in a, in a, in a social distance camp with like five other students. And then we have this whole process of them working together. But anyway, so um, you know, she's supposed to be there at eight and she's like, Hey, can we go at seven? Can we go? I mean, I, that kid get dropped off at five 30 because they're doing like uh butterflies, something with butterflies or whatever, like that joy. Do they go early? Do they stay late? Do they, do they want to be there? Um, education should be full of joy, right? Edu- you know, if you think about anything that you learn that moment, when you figure it out, like it just happens to me on a daily basis. I'm, I, Lightroom, I mean, you know, going from Lightroom to Photoshop to, you know, denoising sites and all these things. And it's just like, how do you stack layers? And, and then you spend four hours trying to figure out how to stack layers. And you're like, oh, I need to do this. And, you, and it comes to you and you're like, yes, I figured it out. Right. Like that's that's education. That's joy. Right. And the problem is that we think about education as a process, something that happens to you. You are an educated you're an educator, you get educated, you go through school, you go through third grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, you go through all these different grades. It's, you, there's a whole process around education. Uh, you have a curriculum, you have a, you have a, a schedule, you have a textbook, you have, it's all linear, it's all set up, it's all drawn out for you. And the reality is that education has to be a mindset. It has to be this kind of self-awareness, this, this awareness that starts with I don't know how to do something or I don't know something. How can I learn it? Where can I go learn it? How do I learn it? And then did I learn it or not? Right. And, and so that to me is what education is. And so we have enough research out there. We don't need to invent anything new. We have enough research out there that tells us what great learning looks like, what it needs to be. And we just have to go out and do it. Yeah. That's a great way to, to bring this conversation uh, to a close, that sort of uh, challenge, but also the realization that we have a lot of the the resources at our disposal. Um, but before we do close, uh, Jamie, I want to give you the last word. Anything you want to say uh, that you haven't been able to say? Yeah, that's always that's that's always my favorite question because it's probably about two and a half hours worth of things that I want to say <laughs> that we talked about. But I, I would say this that. Whether you are an educator or administrator or parent, you know, whoever you are in this education pipeline, uh, a couple of things. One is that the impact that you have on students is like nothing else, right? The, the impact that you have on students is tremendous isn't the right word because think about it, right? Ask any adult, ask anyone who's not in the education space, hey, who is your fourth grade teacher? Who is your, no matter how old they are. Who is your sixth grade teacher? Who is your favorite teacher? Right? Like they everyone remembers who their fourth grade teacher is or their sixth grade teacher is or their ninth grade teacher or their favorite math uh, teacher in high school. Like everyone remember that's the impact that you have, right? I don't even remember my boss's name from like 2 weeks ago, right? Like I that's the impact 
I honestly don't. That's the impact that we have on students is that it's forever, right? And that's huge responsibility, but also it's got to make you feel good that you're impacting lives that way, right? So that, that's the first part. But here's the thing we don't think about, that the impact that we have on those students isn't just on those students. It goes on for generations and generations and generations. Like you, you you have an impact on students that you will never meet in your entire life, no matter how long you teach for, right? Because my impact, the impact that my educators had on me wasn't on just on me. It was on my 27-year-old with a with a college degree, on my 19-year-old with he's in the middle of college, and my five-year-old. Like that's the impact. And it's gonna be on their kids and their kids' kids. And my my 27-year-old doesn't know who my fourth grade teacher is, doesn't know who my ninth grade teacher is, doesn't know how I learned math uh, in this unbelievable way by my math teacher in high school, right? Like, like she doesn't know those things, but that's the impact that we have is that it goes on for generations and generations and generations. So, so that's one. So, and the second part of that is that if that's true, then we should probably take this very seriously and we should make sure we're doing it right off the top. And what I mean by that is what we really need to do is focus on what good learning is and what is it that we want our students to know, right? We're living in this whole new world, this digitalization world where everything, uh, where digitalization is gonna be part of everything. And what we need to understand is that we are at the very, 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 very beginning of this, right? So, you know, you think about technology and the fact that you and I are talking through technology and technologies and everything, and we just think it's inundated in everything that we do. We're having conversations about whether or not we have too much technology and, and what artificial intelligence. Like, we're so much at the, I mean, if you, from a scale to one to 1,000, we're like at one one hundredth in terms mm-hmm. of what's going to be possible with technology the way we define it today. As an example, Google had a breakthrough in quantum computing a couple of months ago, and Let's not, we'll, we'll save quantum computing lessons for another podcast, but let's just enough to know this, that quantum computing is this un, un, insane way to think about computing and to think about physics and to think about what you can do with, uh, with technology, right? And so if you think about quantum computing, the breakthrough that Google had is that if you take a, an equation, if you, could, if, if you take a, a mathematical formula, you know, one of those that spins forever, and you feed it to a supercomputer, the world's most powerful supercomputer, it would take that supercomputer 10,000 years to get through the equation, to process that equation, 10,000 years. That's supercomputer. The Google breakthrough in quantum computing is that we they can now do it in 300 seconds. So think about that, 10,000 years versus 300 seconds. And of course, it's not on a MacBook Pro, right? That, you know, you're talking about gazillions of servers and giant rooms to process that thing in 300 seconds, but one day it will be on a MacBook Pro. What is coming, right? And that to me is an amazing thing to think about. 10,000 years mm-hmm. versus 300 seconds and what's, bet- and what's in between those two numbers. And, and we are at the very beginning of this. And so what we need to think about is when we, and it's very easy to do this. We could just seriously sit down and do an inventory check of all the things that we teach kids and all the things that we teach students and all the subjects and the way we teach them. And then ask ourselves a very, it's a one criteria question. The answer that we're, the answer that we're looking for from our students, can a machine do this? Can a machine answer this question? And if the answer is yes, cross it out. Hmm. 
And, and if we can just go down the list and look at it that way, what we'll do, you'll, I can tell you what's going to happen at the end. At the end of that exercise, what you're going to do is you're going to find that it comes down to human skills, problem solving, critical thinking, collaboration, the ability to learn, creativity, those things that we've been talking about for so long. Those are the skills that our students are going to need. That doesn't mean you don't learn content. doesn't mean you don't learn subjects. But when I look at my five-year-old, those are the five things I want her to be able to know how to do every day. And those are the skills that I want her to build. The content to me is irrelevant. It could be anything, right? So, so it, it, because if my five-year-old wants to do problem solving through the, an understanding of what water is and where does it go versus a curriculum thing that says, oh, no, no, you're going to learn problem solving through space. It doesn't matter as long as she's learning problem solving. And so if we can focus on those human skills, not only that, they're a lot more fun than trying to memorize what happened mm -hmm. in America in, 19, in 1941. Right. So I just think that that's where we need to head. That's great. Our final segment is shout outs. Who do you want to shout out? All right. So, so that's a, two things. One, one, two people. One is Google, right? So like I've been talking to you today, if it wasn't for the 14 years I spent at Google. So I, I just think they're an amazing company. I worked with some of the smartest people in the world. And to me, to be honest with you, I didn't leave 10 years ago because one of the things I was always afraid of was that I wouldn't be able to work with some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, right? So so it's just an unbelievable company and I'm here for them if they ever need me and, and luck and all those things. Uh, so that's one. And the second people that I want to shout out are the teachers that have to deal with, and that's all of them, that have to deal with what education is going to look like this fall. And to take a step back, and, and take a chill pill and understand that our students are not falling behind, that as long as they're learning, learning anything, as long as they're focused on the basics around reading and writing. I mean, literally a kid can, if a, if a kid read, a, if a student read a book every day, that's more education than it would be to do the memorization of some kind of subject that we make them do, right? And so not to, not to, fall, not to feel like they're falling behind, but to, to be there for them. And then the last reason is because a lot of students the, the, especially the ones that are growing up like me, their teacher is the most important person in that kid's life, right? The most important, the most, uh, the, the role model, the, the, the safety, uh, a lot of kids that are dealing with issues around safety and, you know, it, it, they, they, they walk around life with a pit in their stomach like I did and their teacher is their safe spot. And so, that's what you should focus on is making sure that you're available for those students. And if it, if it means doing a hangout with them or, or doing a Zoom call with them, that, that those students need you more than ever. Jamie, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so, so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time, your passion, your thoughtfulness. To those listening, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. <laughs>